I was in finance for a very long time. It doesn't mean that I'm a great investor when it comes to my own money, right? All sorts of biases come in. I mean, think about how many um, physicians or doctors you go to who are unhealthy. Yeah, exactly. Humans have this, you know, funny dynamic where we're much, you know, we're, we're able to be a lot more clear-headed, objective, less emotional, um, and scientific when we're helping others. Um, it's much more difficult when we're trying to do it ourselves. Welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the worlds of arts, culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm your host, Hesham Montasser. If you're joining us for the first time today, follow us in your podcast player to get alerted about our new episodes, which are aired every other week. You can listen to our extensive catalog of previous episodes on our website, thelighthouse.ae slash podcast. They include some amazing guests, including Bedouin foodie Hanil Malki, Fintech's Barakas Faraz Jalboot, Kitobi's Muhammad Balut, and so many others. I'm joined on the show today by Rami Sarafa. I've known Rami from the days when he was a student at Harvard College. I then went on to hire him as part of my team at EFGR Mess in Dubai. As you already know, I've since left the finance world, while Rami is now a founder within it, having launched Cordoba Advisory Partners, where they offer portfolio management, investment advice, as well as services for family wealth management and generational wealth. This episode is quite timely, considering the events of the last couple of weeks, what happened in Silicon Valley Bank, Credit Suisse, etc. Although we recorded this before all of it happened, still, one of the key questions is for so many people out there is, where do they put their money? We talk about how our access to investment opportunities has changed so drastically compared to even a decade ago. And we asked Rami for some advice for those who want to get started with investing their savings. How do they go about it? Where do they put their money? What is safe? But first, we need to set the record straight about something that happened 15 years ago. Something I just want to put out there, and it's not the reason we invite you on the show, obviously, but I figured it's a good opportunity to dispel a myth about me. Yeah. And this show is about me to some extent. It's about my guests, of course, which is that I I'll once threw a stapler at you. I think this is a good moment to just dispel that myth. This never happened. There's no recollection of it. There's no footage. Can you just on the record say that this never happened? Because I feel like it's haunting me 15 years later. Yeah, I mean, my counsel would disagree with you. Um, <laughs> there, there was definitely an incident uh, which occurred uh, probably in the late George W. Bush years. Do we have proof? No, no proof. I think yeah. I have a minor scar. Um, but, um, you know, that was a different time. It was a different time in, in business and finance in the world prior to a lot of the changes that have happened in recent years. And uh, I was a young budding analyst at the time uh, work, working with you at uh, EFG. A very good here one, Dubai. too. Let me kind of rewind from the start, then we'll come back to EFG. So tell us a little bit about you growing up. You uh, grew up in Michigan. You were a son of an Iraqi man and a Palestinian woman. And the mixture is quite impressive because I've known you for many years 100% occupied. Yes. And, 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 you know, honestly, I think it's a great, great mix. But tell us a little bit about growing up because you grew up in Michigan. What was that like? You were the second uh, of three children, correct? Yes, correct. Uh, first boy. So you have an older sister and a younger brother. Yes, and what was that like? Just kind of paint the picture for us uh, of growing up. Were you, was the Arab thing conscious in any way or were you just not feeling it and it's something that came later in life? 
Yeah, so I mean, you know, my father is Iraqi. Originally, my family's from the northern part of Iraq near Mosul and Nineveh.、Uh, my mother's Palestinian、uh, from the West Bank.、Uh, they both、uh, studied in Cairo, so Egypt was very much a part of their formative. Is that where、years. they met? They met in Cairo. Yes, my dad and mom have differing stories, but、uh, they both agree <laughs> on the geographic location. Okay, that's good.、Um, and my mom, at the time, you know, my Palestinian side of the family was、uh, all pretty much still in the Arab world for the most part, but like most, you know, Palestinians were were spread out,、uh, you know, everywhere. So she had family in the Gulf, in Egypt, in Jordan.、Um, And、uh, my father's family had started immigrating to、uh, the Detroit area in Michigan back in the '60s and '70s.、Um, so actually, even you know, some of the immigration started when you know Iraq was still stable and prosperous, and、um, you know, it wasn't a reaction necessarily to political trends, rather just sort of the traditional American immigrant experience of wanting to better yourself and your family and seek you know opportunity elsewhere. So my great uncle was the first one who came, which I think was probably in the '60s. And Detroit had always had this、um, magnetic pull for、um, immigrant communities, but Arabs in particular, because they could use some of the skills that they learned. Engineering skills, correct? In in industry, yeah, an in industry that was、um, you know preeminent in in Detroit at least at that time. So my mom, I mean, the story and you know that she tells me is that my dad sort of duped her into moving to you know to the U.S. But he told her that you know Michigan was this beautiful place <laughs> that she would love.、Um, and the story is that they landed, I guess, in in March、uh, or a, a time when the trees were all dead. My mom was very. <laughs> She looked at it and she thought it was the ugliest, brownest, you know, place on earth. And my dad said, "Don't worry, you know, in a few、It'll、weeks, bloom. yeah, in a few weeks, all the trees will come back." And she didn't believe him, and then they did. And Michigan is actually very beautiful when the、it、trees、is. are there. It's very lush and a lot of water, and、um, and then they they built a life,、um, you know. And I think for you know, like all immigrants, you know, one of the things that gives you a lot of、uh, grounding or comfort is if there are people from your family or your community in the place that you're going to. And my dad had that. My dad is the youngest of、uh, second youngest of seven. My mom is the youngest of twelve.、Um, but my dad had、uh, an instant sort of foundational support in in Detroit in his family, in his family and friends and community. And did、um, you feel that growing up as well? In other words, lots of cousins, uncles, aunts, all of that. Very much so. So, so you, you feel you were more rooted than kind of in your dad is、um, Chaldean. Yes. So as part of the Chaldean community, not that it matters. I'm just trying to understand the context. Was that kind of the the main force or the main influence growing up? It, it's interesting because Detroit actually has such a prominent and diverse Arab community that there's almost strata within the community, right? <laughs> so there are. I don't know, upwards of maybe six hundred thousand, seven hundred thousand direct Arab immigrants. You include their, you know, their descendants and whatnot. Maybe up to a million of、uh, the total population. So I mean, it's very, very significant.、Um, but you have, you know, the Arabs or the Arab. You know, I use the word Arab to encompass lots of different groups from the wider Arab world. Chaldeans, some don't consider, you know, don't say they're Arab; they say they're Chaldean. But yeah, whatever. It's like the Lebanese. Yeah, something exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, so there's different strata within the Arab Detroit experience, which is actually unique. So the Chaldeans immigrated to a specific area, built、um, businesses that were very different than, for instance, more recent immigrants that came from places like Yemen、uh, or Syria or Lebanon. So there was、um, a lot of differentiation in terms of the, you know, the the life experience. 
So Chaldeans, because they had been coming for a while, because the assimilation as Christians was probably easier, um, were definitely more established and probably more prosperous than other uh, Arab immigrant groups at that time. Okay. How did it affect you? I mean, let's talk yeah. a little bit about how, in your, within the context of you growing up, are you suggesting that made you feel less like kind of your typical immigrant or you've had less of the kind of second generation experience that maybe other second generation kids would have? Well, number one, I think that like all young people, I think there's like a, a natural progression which happens to all human beings who go through the immigrant experience. So when you're young, you want to fit in and you mm. want to assimilate um, and you don't want to be different. And I was very conscious that I kind of had a name that was different. My sister had a name that was different. I remember being embarrassed because my parents had weird names, you know, yeah, compared, to uh, compared to everyone else. So I definitely felt different mm. or unique. So when you're young, you go through this, you know, you want to assimilate and you kind of really don't like the differentiation. Then when you get into your young adult years, you almost sort of overcompensate. Mm. You know, America, you know, ingrains you to want to celebrate diversity to the point where you sort of wear it like a a badge Shield, of honor, yeah. yeah, and and it's almost like you have to. Be, also makes for a good college story, typically. Makes for a great college essay, um, yeah. you know, which uh, I definitely uh, exploited to a certain degree. <laughs> and then you get into the older adult years, which is you kind of understand your culture really well, really introspectively. You understand the history, you understand a lot of things, and then it becomes a combination of pride, critique, um, and sort of a bittersweet relationship, right? Um, and I think that's where then you sort of you know, find your your resting place, if you will, which is this is a part of your life and you love it and you celebrate it, but you also understand its limitations, its flaws, um, you know, its vulnerabilities, uh, yeah. etc. What I find very interesting about you is that when I met you, so when I met you, you were obviously still a student and you happened to be with my wife's sister in class so that's why we orig originally met yeah but you were very interested in coming and potentially living in the middle east i mean dubai was just starting as an as a thing at the time and that's interesting because obviously you've had a lot of opportunities being in the u.s staying in the u.s doing well there and even unlike your siblings who are very comfortable being in the u.s where i think coming to the middle east and living here or making a life here was really not something that seems of interest to them they might celebrate their arab roots but that's about as far as it's gonna go and nothing wrong with that by the way yeah but you seem very keen on kind of um exploring life in this part of the world where did that come from um was it curiosity was it you felt there'd be more opportunity you would have maybe an opportunity that you wouldn't have in the u.s what you know, because a kid coming out of Harvard, frankly, you have a lot of options. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things there. I mean, number one, I, I, I like using the term Arab world, not Middle East. Middle East is, you know, middle sure. and the east of what, right? Um, I think the Arab world was, was interesting um, to me for various reasons. I think the most overarching reason was because my parents um, were extremely proud Arabs. So my parents were sort of cut from that you know, Doth. Arabist cloth of the 60s and 70s when there was a lot of hope, when there was a, a triumph of, you know, diversity, um, some, you know, uh, liberalism, um, you know, the state systems were, you know, more stable, if not prosperous, more stable than they are today. Sure. Um, and they very much carried that with them. So I think at a young age, I took an interest in it because it gave me uh, affirmation. Yeah, uh, it made, you know, it was sort of, you know, like all children, they want to appease, you know, their parents. And I realized that for them, you know, growing up, they watched Arabic movies, and they listened to Arabic music, and they would go out to, you know, 
uh, Arabic places, whether it be restaurants or music lounges or whatever. Um, and so that was a way for me to bond with them, mm. right, and share information that I learned and talk to them about their history. So I think that was very dominant. You, you could have, I'm just going to push back here, you could have done this also living in the States and going to a bunch of Arab restaurants and watching, you know, Arab DVDs in the evening. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, Well, I also I, did that. No, yes. I'm sure. But you know what I mean? Like, I feel like in your case, there was more to it than that. You actually wanted to almost experience life in those parts of the world. And so maybe Dubai is, I'm not going to say less Arab, it's, it's not that, it's more international, more diverse than some of the other cities, certainly where I grew up in Cairo, or we talk about Riyadh and others. Um, but you seemed very keen on exploring all of it, in fact. It wasn't just living in Dubai and living expat life, even when you lived here. Yeah, I mean, one, I think we have to, you know, uh, point out that you were really the one who dragged me here. And, um, you Is know... Is this a stapler thing again? <laughs> no, I mean, you know, when I when I met you, you know, that, that time when I was a junior um, and you offered me an internship, I think it was very interesting to me to be able to have the opportunity to find a real sustainable career that happens to be in in the arab world and it was sort of happen chance right yeah. it it definitely fulfilled my interest but it was also if there wasn't a good opportunity and there wasn't an opportunity that was genuinely you know interesting empowering um you know and elevating to me i wouldn't have come right sure. i wouldn't have come just for the sake of it i'm not a sure not the backpacking type right um but that time you know if everyone recalls you know you know uh time flies but 2001 to 2008 was the emerging market boom, right? Yeah. It was the time when everyone wanted to be a part of what we considered the future of the world economy, right? Which was the rising China, the rising, you know, Middle East, the rising India, the rising Latin America. Um, and that was completely, you know, in vogue at the time. Um, you know, it was that, you know, and so, so I think that it was exciting to be a part of growth, kind yeah, of similar sure. to the way being a part of tech is today. Yeah. That you caught the kind of last tail end of that cycle, and you also saw IDFG because it was such an entrepreneurial place, really, even though it was a publicly traded company. I feel like you got a, a bit of that entrepreneurial bug, right? That kind of almost felt like a startup in many ways. Yeah, definitely. And it felt like you were doing something um, that mattered, different, yeah. right? And you, and something that was, you know, I remember telling my college classmates or friends about the opportunity and everyone would think it was so cool and interesting right i didn't take that mckinsey job in you know uh an american city like so many of my my peers let's fast forward uh, to to years from there i mean when you started at efg certainly i remember those days very fondly i mean you were i'm not just saying that because you're here but really excellent what you did you were part of the business development team so the primary task really essentially was I'm kind of, uh, you know, re reducing a little bit to, it's not one thing that you were doing, but essentially it was for us to raise more funds for the firm to invest. So there's a sales element to it, which you are exceedingly good at, but you're also extremely organized and, and very disciplined and good at a lot of other things. Over time, you've obviously evolved. You went on to work for multifamily offices, and now you have your own firm. Uh, investing on behalf of your clients. And I feel like the the characteristics needed to succeed in what you do definitely have a sales element to them, always important, especially when you run your own business, but also investment acumen, an understanding of markets, and then a combination of the two, which is a very difficult set of attributes to have, right? So typically you have kind of your 
really good investors and they're usually good at, good at investing, but they're not people you want to put in front of clients in many cases. I'm exaggerating. There's some in the middle. Yeah. Then you have people that are excellent at selling. They're usually not the type that would invest because it takes a different part of the brain to do those two things. True. You have to combine the two, but forget what you had to do because when you start your own business, you have to do a lot of things. What did you feel was your attribute as you started going to finance? Did you like immediately gravitate towards kind of sales and business development as your primary asset and built it from there? Or you just saw it as a way to get into the investing side? Yeah, so I have to correct you. I think my main job at EFG was up managing you. Um, that too. It That's was an easy it, job, though. That it, like, it, it is. That's you like five percent of. Them. I mean, it's basically God's work, but <laughs> I I had to um, uh, make sure that you know we were the uh, trains ran on time. Yes, the trains yeah, let's ran just on put time. It down. Yes, let's I, keep it down. I think that's a, that's 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 the correct metaphor. So that was my main job. <laughs> well, um, thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. You're yeah, welcome. Yeah. And I also learned not to wear a tan suit. Um, that's after that, true. That, that, and and boots. And yeah, no tan suit. No I mean, boots. yeah. I mean, I've, I mean, I'm, I, I'll kind of maybe I sh- should I tell the story just because it's no, fun? it's not necessary. But I, but I, but I do think I do yeah. think that this is related to the stapler. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, no, the uh, boots is his own thing. I had nothing to do with that. I mean, I was just like when I heard the clucking of the boots, I knew that day wouldn't go well for you. And then I saw a bunch of the brokers coming out and rearing their like eyes out of their offices and just like staring out. Like, oh Lord, there, there, this there, day will be a long day. There, Let's there, just say there was no clucking, but Cluck? I was, you Cluck? know, I, I was, that. I was bringing some, you know, American bravado, uh, yeah, flair to to the emerging market. Yeah, it's kind of like what they, like Jeff Bezos brought some like. Texon, tex, Texan elements to his job because you know apparently he spent a long time in Texas, which I didn't know. His grandparents lived in Texas, but anyway. So you may have brought that like kind of Pax Americana to yeah, maybe yeah. DIFC. Yeah, I mean Is that fair. Some yeah, some called it inspirational, <laughs> but you know, let's you know, I digress. But um, well, you know, I just want also just on that point. It's actually an important point. I mean, you know, I also I I have lived your trauma many years before you. I think uh-huh. I mentioned this to you on my first job at Merrill Lynch on the trading floor in New York. I once wore brown leather shoes and the trader saw me and it took about seven minutes, no, seven seconds, sorry, to recognize what I've done. He made me take them off and he nailed them on the wall of the Maryland trading floor, Right, believe it or not, for all to see. So I kind of knew how traumatic this can be. So all I was doing... Did you walk in your socks on the subway? How did you... (laughs) It's a very good question. I don't remember how I got home that day. That day is quite a bit fuzzy. But I recall your boot incident, let's call it that, yeah. reminding me of this and I actually came to the rescue. I ensured that you got home safely with your boots. Yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah? You did. Yeah. yeah. Thank, so anyway, thank you for that. Just, that's yeah, that's yeah. part of explains part of my loyalty. Yeah. But but to go to your to <laughs> to go to your earlier question, I think yeah. about, you know, I, I the, the part that I liked the most about the industry was the relationships. Um, everything, you know, for the most part, um, finance is a very personal or relational industry. Um, if you're sitting in front of a trading screen, trading, you know, esoteric derivatives, maybe not, but if you're dealing with, you know, helping people manage their money, uh, putting money to work, looking at deals, um, you know, giving people peace of mind, it's really just a, you know, relational psychology job. Um, and I really enjoyed, uh, I really enjoy speaking with people. I really enjoy, um, you know, uh, feeling, you know, letting someone feel, you know, at ease 
um, that their you know affairs are being being looked after. Um, so I think the relational aspect is really the most you know was most empowering for me. Um, and then there was a special sort of uniqueness in the sense that I was interested in this region and in this culture. So building relationships with that premise was very interesting to me. Um, and it gave me a format to be able to speak to people and build relationships with people that were very different um, and might have a different background, um, but maybe some commonality, right? So there was this, this thread, uh, if you will. When we come back, we talk about what Rami calls the democratization of information and access within finance. That's right after the short break. Welcome back. I'm Hasha Montasser, and you're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with my guest, Rami Sarafa. I feel one of the very interesting things that you do is unlike a lot of people in this profession that manage money, uh, and certainly when we talk about institutional, you know, investment banks, private banks, etc., they actually almost, and obviously I've been in this industry for a long time, so I have my own experiences as well. They almost want to make it look complicated because, and I'm not saying it's not, I'm going to get to that in a second, but the client almost needs to feel intimidated because that justifies the fees, the need for having those bankers. And again, I think you probably do need them after you reach a certain size. But what I found interesting about the approach you've taken is you're trying to almost demystify it. There's obviously an understanding that your average person cannot do this job by himself, but you're not, you're trying to break it into building blocks. So even as a client, this person understands, you know, how is this money invested? If there's a hundred dollars, here's the breakdown, how that goes. And it looks simpler and it looks a little bit more transparent versus like, oh, no, 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 no. You have to trust me because this is really complicated and I'm going to do some very complicated things with those hundred dollars. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think that finance and investing in general has evolved a lot, but I mean, the principle that simplicity is, you know, empowering and sustains and itself. transparency. Yeah, simplicity and transparency are always the name of the game, and they always have been in investing. Um, what, you know, just like in any industry, if you make something um, seem complicated, then people will pay a premium for it. Right. Either through money or through trust or through whatever, they'll extract a premium from their client or from their customer um, because it's complicated. Right. Think about, you know, the type of person that you would let do surgery on you. Right. <laughs> it would be, a, you know, a fraction of, of, of the population. Um, what what we try, although investing has changed a great deal. Right. So what's happened in the last 15 or 20 years is there's been, you know, um, a democratization in terms of information and access like in all industries, yeah. right? So nowadays, someone sitting in Dubai who's not an American or European can open up a brokerage account with any of these online brokers or private banks, and they can buy a security listed in any major market in the world with the right. press of a button, Yeah, right? Um, that was unheard of 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Not even 10 years ago. Yeah, even 10 it's years ago. It's still difficult. Yeah. You I mean, had to go get custody accounts opening outside of a dollar-denominated, your own accounts outside of living in America and Europe. It was very, very complicated and costly. Correct. I mean, just to be able to, like something we take for granted today, which is being able to invest in an index fund, right? An index fund is What's simply, an index fund? Can you just Yeah, clarify? so an index fund is basically, you know, uh, or an exchange traded fund is basically a index comprised of stocks that are listed on a specific market uh, that track something. So the most common one is the S&P 500. So these are the 500 largest companies in the US, 
um, and you can go and buy a index product. Uh, so you, you know, with the click of a button that then puts your money in every single one of those 500 stocks. Yeah. So then you have exposure to all 500 instantaneously at a low fee. At a very low fee. Actually, the largest S&P 500 index fund in the US um, charges zero. So it doesn't actually Amazing. cost anything. Is that because obviously nobody wants to charge zero or not charge? It's because it's so competitive that that's one way for them to get assets and then they'd be able to charge on other things. Is Correct. that right? Yeah, it's, they charge on advertising, selling information, yeah. sweeping your cash, doing all these other <laughs> yeah. things that... Yeah, everything else is chargeable. Yeah. Well, as we're all finding out after the last year and a half, right? Um nothing is free. Yeah. Um, it might feel like it's free to yeah. use Facebook and it might feel like it's free to use Uber's app and right. it might feel like it's free to use, you know, seamless, right. but, but yeah, it's not, you're it's giving not... your information in return. Yeah. There's, there's something that you're, you're paying. Um, yeah. and so this, you know, the, the, you know, the revolution of, I guess, index funds, um, really commoditize investing in a way which was, you know, miraculous and very empowering to people that might not have massive amounts of wealth. Yeah. Um, you know, historically, if you kind of just go back 20 or 30 years ago and think about how difficult it would have been for an individual to build a global portfolio in like the 80s, right? And especially if you didn't have significant wealth, um, it would have been near impossible to buy stocks, first of all, outside of the US. And if you did, it would have been relegated to maybe Europe and Japan. Correct. Um, and then to be able to create a balanced portfolio where you can buy lots of things that manage your risk. Uh, and give you diverse exposures would have been even more challenging. Um, you know, there was this, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of like the Nifty 50. Uh -huh. Yeah. So like, you know, there was this, um, you know, basically, you know, Nifty 50 is a, a, a term for effectively an early index fund, right? Which was brokers would go and buy the 50, it was a mutual fund that would go and buy the 50 best companies in the U.S., um, and the reason why it was great is because they were the best 50 companies and they sold, this was the most, you know, popular product for, for two decades. Basically, it's just a very rudimentary, um, you know, version of what we have today for, for all markets and indexes. So I have a lot of follow-up questions, but obviously this is not a finance class or, or investment recommendation class. So we're not going to go into all of it, but I want to just tackle a few things because I get this all the time. As someone that was in finance previously, I get a lot of friends saying, if I had $100 today, how do I invest it? And to your point, you get two types of people, people who know this stuff quite well, in many cases do it themselves, probably to their detriment in some cases. Um, and then you have some people that are really completely overwhelmed by the, all the information out there, have no idea how to do it. But then think of, frankly, firms like yours as expensive or as being only for the rich, right? I'm just kind of, you know, so they're not for your average person. So let's just talk, dispel some of these myths here. Starting with number one, um, these ETFs and these index funds that you spoke about today enabled a lot of people to be able to get exposure to markets, even if their quantum of wealth is not very high. You right. can take $100 and invest it in the market. So if we take that as a starting point, would you today advise someone that comes to you with $100 and is willing to hold it for a long period of time, let's call that 10 years, to just go and buy this S&P 500 tracker, put those $100, forget all about it, and come back in 10 years? Would that be your advice? Or would your advice be differently? You know, I think for investors that have a little bit of money that they just want to put to work, um, I think buying a few index funds okay. is a great way to have 
you know, a robust portfolio that will gain a lot over long periods of time. I think the most important principle in investing, Mm -hmm. and it's the one that, you know, I can't emphasize enough, is you just have to stay invested. Okay. Um, the biggest mis- more than diversification more than well if you're buying index funds by by definition you're diversified but so, you have to be diversified only in terms of the stocks that you're buying or should you diversify by asset class so you have bonds you have stocks real estate all of this stuff yeah that's a good question i mean i think that let's let's be very clear if you were to just buy the s&p 500 and hold it for a few decades you'll be You'll be great. You'll be fine. <laughs> you'll, yeah. yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll so do the very simple well. answer is just go and buy the S and P five hundred. Well, sort it's, it's of. It's one I mean, option. That's yeah. one option. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, is that there are certain downfalls with doing that, right? One of the downfalls. So the S and P five hundred last year was down nineteen percent. Correct. You get like last year, you got interest rate hikes and could be a bloodbath or two thousand and eight. Correct. Or two thousand. Correct. There's a lot of these cycles. And not only that, it doesn't have to all. It doesn't have to also. It doesn't have to always be negative. It could also be 2002, 2006 when Correct. you missed the entire emerging market boom, right? I mean, people made life changing fortunes investing in emerging market equities, Chinese equities, etc. For you know the first decade of this uh, century. I feel I need uh, to really like at the end of my life in obituary have the sentence he made a life changing fortune. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I never know what exactly it means life-changing, but I feel like we should like, yeah, I have a life-changing fortune. Anyway, yeah, I, I think I, I think it means I, I think I think what life-changing fortune means to most people is that they didn't have to worry about money. think about yeah. money as much yeah. as they did before and they had comfort in terms of their decision-making process. So there's a lot of talk about things like typically people would have told you back in the day, very simplistically again, because this is not, you know, we're not gonna go into nitty-gritty, but you know, if you invest 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds, and put it, again, same $100, you're fine. And then last year happens, and both went down. Not very likely, but it did happen. So what do you say to that? Is that 60-40 rule, which was so ingrained in so many people's heads, now gone forever after? Well, I think it's important to just very quickly explain why there's that rule. So the reason why there's that rule is that bonds and stocks stocks typically do not correlate with one another, Correct. right? So typically when equities are doing really poorly, bonds do really well. So it's a it's a counterweight, right? So the whole point is, is that you're creating balanced risk, risk exposure. That's Correct. where the term balanced portfolio comes from. Last year was so exceptional because the reason why equity markets went down was due to interest rates going up, which also affect bonds, yeah. right? Um, that relationship will sustain over long periods of time. Over long periods of time, a balanced portfolio will do a really good job. Um, now, that being said, if you want a little bit more juice and a little more sophistication, um, there are tons of different types of investments that you can use to diversify your portfolio. So one of the issues with a 60-40 portfolio is that everything on the bond side or the fixed income side tends to be you know, really long-dated um, you know, fixed income. Which means more sensitive to interest rate moves. Correct. It means that you're buying a bond that pays that that's issued for a 10-year period or a 20-year period as opposed to a two or a three or a four-year period. Uh, nowadays, there are ETFs or you know very accessible securities that you can buy, which invest in everything from shorter duration bonds to um, interest rate hedging to alternatives to real estate, etc. So my advice would be if you actually have a significant amount of wealth, really thinking about overall asset allocation in a constructive way can add a lot of value. Um, if you don't want to do that and you just want to, you know, uh, forget it, buying a balanced portfolio and letting it, letting it sit will do just fine. 
Um, I think, you know, uh, our firm, you know, Cordoba, we would outperform the balanced portfolio. Um, but I think, uh, you know, for the most part, it'll do fine. Two questions. First of all, where did the name Cordoba come from? I love the name, but where, what inspired the name? Yeah. So first of all, I don't know if you ever, it, well, in the U.S., if you ever try to name a company or anything in the U.S., it's all taken. It's an excruciating yeah. uh, endeavor yeah, because everything has been patented. I tried it with the lighthouse, but yeah, yeah, it's I it's, know the feeling. It's remarkable. So basically, finance names are usually um, a nature word with a color. Yeah, it's true. So if you if you just take any Pine Street, yeah, or like yeah. you know Black Rock or yeah. Blue Ocean or yeah. any nature word with Black a Rock was great because it's Black Rock. That came out of black stone. So right. it's kind of exactly. terrific how unremarkably uncreative they were. It's Correct. brilliant. Correct. Yeah. So so I wanted a name that wasn't that. Mm. Um and you know, was available. And it's very difficult to you know, you don't have to be defensive about the name. I think there's more to it than that. I know the backstory. So no, 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 yes, no. So, it was available, but I mean, there's more to it. No, it there, meant something to you, I think. No, no, definitely. There is, there is value and meaning in the name. And that has to do with Cordoba or Cortuba is referring to a city in Andalusia. Um, you know, Andalusia, which is southern Spain uh, and Portugal, was a part of the Arab world and the Islamic world for, you know, centuries, actually for a much longer period. Yeah, the golden age of the Arab Renaissance, right? Correct. So if you were a wealthy, you know, Venetian merchant in the 11th century in Italy, and you wanted to send your kids to school, you know, you would send them to Cordoba. Mm. That's where the universities were. That's where learning was. That's where liberal ideas were, um, you know, being fostered. Um, and, you know, so it was a, it was a place of learning. It was a place of power. It was a place where things like math and astronomy and uh, science were very much valued. Um, so it's sort of like the Boston of its day, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know. So you identified with that. Yeah, I thought it was cool. And then I thought it was, a, you know, it was sort of a unique play on, um, you know, uh, enlightenment, if you will. And then we mix that with the words advisory partners um, to give the acronym CAP, which is, you know, a shortened version of the word capital. And capital, of course, Never. is the essence of all, um, you know, all finance. And I mean, you were already successful in finance, in that business, advising clients on capital allocation, whatnot. But as far as I can remember, meaning, you know, when you were kind of of age to do your own thing, you've been wanting to do your own thing. What drives this? Because your parents were doctors. I mean, they weren't uh, like they were like my parents were like professors, right? So like entrepreneurship was not necessarily something. I mean, I think you were always since I've known you very entrepreneurial as a person. But you didn't grow up in a house where, like, your dad, you know, had his store and that grew. So why did you want it to do your own thing in a in a field where you could do exceedingly well, frankly, without taking the risk of starting your own business? Well, actually, I mean, I, I, I'll push back a little bit on the sense that my parents are entrepreneurs because they never worked for anyone. Good my point. My parents true. They had, their, had own their own practices and they had their Fair own enough. patients and they built something from scratch. I mean, not only that, in a system in a country that they had to learn. That's right? a good point. Um, so so they, is that where you got it from? You feel? Yeah, I mean, I, I saw, you know, my I remember when my mom was opening a practice, my dad going and seeing a bunch of spaces with her. I remember my dad working tirelessly at night on his desk to, you know, figure things out, whether they be, you know, accounting or, um, you know, any aspect of the business. And then my dad even did forays into real estate, of course, all self-taught. Yeah. So I think there was a lot of entrepreneurship in my family in their own way, within their okay. within their guardrails, yeah, if you will. That's a point. You know, that's, that's number one. Number two, I, I just knew since I was young 
I mean, you can, you know, it was, it, I think working for you is a unique situation where I was actually a part of an organization, but for the most part, I, I was always really not great at being in big institutional environments. I think also culturally uh, in finance, you know, with all due respect to a lot of, you know, my peers and friends that work in other companies. Screw them. I, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't, them. I don't love the the predominant culture in finance, Sucks. which, yeah. which tends to be patriarchal, um, <laughs> not diverse, yeah. uh, aggressive, very money hungry and focused. And I wanted, what I knew I liked was I knew I liked this part of the world. I knew I liked people. I knew I liked markets and finance and investing, and I couldn't find a job or a role that, you know, wed those things together in a way that was interesting to me. So I built it. So what is then, what do you feel is your edge? Because if I'm cynical, I can be like, yeah, great, but so many people are just, you know, taking people's money, investing it, frankly. Like, what are you bringing to the table that the guy next door is not? What did you feel your edge was? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few, you know, I don't think it's one thing. I think it's a combination of several. I think for this part of the world, one of the things that, um, you know, one of our edges, so to say, or, or the edge is the fact that we're giving insight to the market that matters the most for global investing, which is the U.S. Um, so if you're a wealthy individual or family sitting in the UAE or in Saudi or in Kuwait or in Egypt or in India, um, and you want to understand where you know, money is being invested and where returns are being generated, you need to understand the United States. Um, North America is three-fourths of the global market capitalization, 75%. Um, and the companies in the U.S. are by far the largest. They're by far the most productive, um, especially in tech, which just sort of accelerated that whole dynamic. And part of what we do is we give these families insight into that market. We give them access and insight. So, you know, our team sits in New York. Um, we have mostly Americans, you know, working for us. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're, we, have, we have a great team. But, um, you know, the, the point is, is that we give access, intelligence, uh, and origination to um, international families to participate in the market that's the most important, at least at this time. I'd actually add another one point here, which I think is important, just from my own experiences. I think you, and you said this actually earlier, I think because you have high emotional intelligence and you probably understand your clients quite well, you're able to serve them better. In other words, like, for example, I was in finance for a very long time. It doesn't mean that I'm a great investor when it comes to my own money, right? All sorts of biases come in. You may have, you know, past trauma. You may have biases towards something you've liked over the years, blah, 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 blah. So if you have, I think, someone investing on your behalf that knows you well and understands your needs, that can be very powerful. And I feel like generally that speaks well to your personality. I mean, you probably have now developed very strong relationships with your clients, or many of them at least. So not only can you customize for them in, in a kind of a general sense, but for this particular individual or family knowing how they think. Is that, is that fair? That, that's, that's 100% true. And you, I mean, think about how many... Um, physicians or doctors you go to who are unhealthy. Yeah, exactly. Think about how many doctors smoke or are overweight or don't watch what they do, but think about the advice that they furnish to their patients every single day, right? The, the humans have this, you know, funny dynamic where we're much, you know, we're, we're able to be a lot more clear-headed, objective, less emotional, um, and scientific when we're helping others. Um, it's much more difficult when we're trying to do it ourselves. It's not impossible. It's just more difficult. 
So sometimes it's great to have an extra pair of uh, eyes or, you know, an advocate to help you think about things in a, in a specific way. Um, and I think that's where, um, you know, we can be helpful. And understanding the needs of a specific family is very important because not everyone has the same goal in mind when they're investing money. Yes, we all want to make money. We all want to, you know, create some wealth for our families. But some people have family dynamics. Some people yeah. have, you know, certain needs relating to their businesses. Um, some people have um, certain, you know, ethics or, um, you know, values that they want to yeah. integrate into their investing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and understanding that is what makes you a good uh, advocate for uh, a family or a client. And in a business that, I mean, I'm sure every day there's something, I know this from my own business, that hits you from left or right. You've also operated over the last 18 months in extraordinarily difficult, some would say probably the most difficult markets we've seen for the last 25 years. Definitely since the Great Recession. Yeah, since the Great Recession, 2008. What do you, have you found to be the biggest challenges in building a business? The biggest challenge in building a business is that you have to wear, you, ha you have to have an amazing ability to wear many hats yeah. and be extremely dynamic every day. So you cannot, you know, humans are, you know, very much um, trained to want to do repetitive behavior every single day, right? It's just how we are. Well, um, Henny is like that. But yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, bless him. But um, people in general like repetition. They like schedules. They like repetition. They like being able to do something which is predictable yeah, and consistent. That, that doesn't allow you that. When you're an entrepreneur, not only does it not allow you, you have a lot of people who are depending on you, your right. employees, to get it right. So you all of a sudden have to know how to do everything from finance to operations to accounting to business development to product development to legal to strategy. Um, and nothing really prepares you um, for having to do all of those things concurrently. Um, and, you know, it's it's hard because you are sort of on the back foot where you cannot, you know, you have to be um, responsive and iterative to whatever you're dealing with in that day, as opposed to long-term. On the fly. On the fly, yeah. as opposed to being long-term focused, right? It's, yeah. it's much easier to be able to come into an office and think about strategy long-term, map it out, organize yourself and you know engage that in a you know um a measured way than it is to get things thrown at you every single day and just deal with it right um so i think that's probably the most difficult the second most difficult thing i think is um, managing people i think that what's happened especially and i think this has actually just gotten much more difficult since covid um managing people is extremely difficult especially in a small firm because you have to understand their uh, preferences, their ambitions, their hopes, their, you know, uh, insecurities. And you have to inspire them. You have to inspire Even on them. days when you're not inspired. Correct. And you have to, it's like being a parent, which I don't have the privilege of being yet, but it's, you know, you cannot, um, if you're having a bad day, you can't necessarily put that or show that on your kids. Oh, I show it all the time. Well, I, I, yeah, it's, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, yeah. let's just be very clear. Yeah, yeah. well, you're not, you're, you're not supposed to, yeah, but, know, exactly. um, you know, for, for the most part, you're, um, yeah. you know, you, yeah. you have to show that you have the ship under control, right? You're steering yeah. it in the right direction um, through a storm. And if you don't show that, it it really seeps into the culture of, of a firm or a family, right? A small firm is like a family. No, a I, I, I completely agree. And I actually relate, relate to that. And I think... Uh, I, I actually have to say, I've watched you navigate this over the last couple of, last few years, frankly, and it's remarkable because 
it is already difficult enough to start a business, but start a business in investing during these treacherous markets of the last 18, 24 months is, is actually quite incredible. So on the flip note of that, um, what gives you pleasure doing it? I mean, so there are the challenges, but what is it about what you do that you feel gives you the most gratification? Yeah, I think that it's, I like to, um, I don't want to use the word pleaser, but I think that it- No, no, it, it's fine it, to be a pleaser. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I like the affirmation of someone who feels, um, you know, well looked after or empowered or at ease um, because we've helped them. You know, finance has this bad name where it's, you know, I think people kind of think of it as, you know, money for money's sake. And a lot of that is not that, right? A lot of it is people who worked really hard their whole lives to make a certain amount of money to give their families um, stability, you know, opportunity, freedom, and stability yeah. and freedom, uh, especially from a part of the world, you know, especially from the developing world, right? These, 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 you know, these, um, you know, places in the Arab world and, and whatnot, um, you know, they're not, they, they have a set of challenges, which is unique relative to, you know, the US and being able to create that wealth and then, you know, protect that wealth for future generations is really meaningful. Um, and I think that, you know, giving people that peace of mind is very um, fulfilling to me. I think also um, teaching. Um, I, I've always, you know, had an inclination to want to be a teacher. Um, and it really gives me, um, you know, great gratification when I see my employees or my juniors um, learning and liking and thriving um, in an industry that they might have not known prior to coming to our firm. Um, and I think that's really great as well. That's great. One final question I may have for you. I remember back in the day when we were together at EFG and one of the things that we would always talk to the capital markets authorities about is that you know, markets here were not liquid. There weren't enough, weren't enough IPOs, companies going public, that is. And therefore, they were mostly a collection of small markets with the exception of Saudi Arabia. But Saudi was, at, at that point, a very, very retail-driven market, not institutional. A lot has changed since. In the Gulf specifically, over the last, would say, 18 to 24 months, a lot of companies have gone public. You now have the markets that are far more liquid, but more institutionally owned as well. I know you have a lot of clients in the region. Um, how do you look on that? Because you you were there during the EFG days when we were saying this needed to happen as a precursor for those markets to develop. Do you feel they're moving in the right direction? Is there any particular piece of advice you had given those authorities to do something differently? I mean, I think that there's definitely been some great progress. I think a country like um, Saudi Arabia deserves credit for all of the... Um, you know, the changes, the reforms and the progress that they've made in recent years, you know, they've been pushing on a privatization drive in terms of companies that were either government or partly government owned as well as privately owned so that they can make their their markets more inclusive. Right. Um, you know, going back to what we were discussing earlier about an ETF, the reason why something like the S&P 500 index is so empowering is because what you're buying is you're buying American growth. Right. So what you're doing is you're buying an index that captures earnings growth from an entire economy in this part of the world and in most emerging markets that does not exist today. A country like the United Arab Emirates, what you're buying when you're buying into that market is you're buying the growth of what's the largest Arab economy and its future. So if you believe in its future and you believe in its development trajectory, um, it's a great way to access and participate in that market 
um, and and give that access to uh, in, you know investors that might not be from the region or from that country. Um, I think the UAE has also done a great job of being a market that is relevant um, for uh, international investors, although that market captures more global trade. You know, the UAE is much more of an entrepot system. Um, it's a service hub. It's a place of, um, you know, uh, trade and hospitality, tourism, logistics, uh, et cetera. Um, and I think, uh, you know, that that drive needs to continue. Uh, unfortunately, in this part of the world, we still have really big uh, economies um, that don't have uh, enough market liberalization or inclusiveness, places like Iraq, uh, Algeria. Um, and I think that, you know, if they can, you know, make their um, economies more participatory, um, it would be great for their long-term development. Okay, that's great. Rami, thank you. Thank we you. We wish you a lot of luck coming out of those treacherous markets in the next year or so, and our next conversation to be uh, at a market high. For sure, and in a tan suit. Thank you. Thanks, Rami. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please share it with friends. The Lighthouse Conversation is hosted by me, Hashem Montasser. We're produced by Chirag Desai, and our content director is Farah Sharif. You can connect with us on Instagram at the Lighthouse underscore podcasts and listen to all our previous episodes by visiting thelighthouse.ae slash podcasts. We'll see you again in two weeks.